0: Welcome, and especially if you arrived this morning, can I say welcome? Uh, some of you may not know me. Uh, we've been praying for Auckland E for a long time. Uh, and it's been really encouraging to see your growth over the years. Uh, my name's Nick. I'm the pastor at a church called Cornerstone Church down in Christchurch. We grew out of a, um, some student work. In 2007, we were involved in some work there. And in 2008, we planted a church right next to the campus. Uh, And that grew, and then we planted a morning church in 2013. And this year we're planting a third congregation uh, in Selwyn district, which was this sort of growing commuter area to the south and west of Christchurch. And uh, that's the thing we're praying for at the moment. I stand like that, will that help? (laughs) Wow. What would you like me to do? Should we just press on? Yep. And if you missed last night, we introduced the idea of thinking about where we're heading this weekend we're just going to spend some time thinking about uh, work and rest but particularly the rest side of it Uh, and the talks you can see on the the front are pause living a life of sabbath Um, i think it's an issue we need to really uh, wrestle with and particularly in the moment in the middle of uh, COVID and pandemic and people are living really frantic and frazzled and kind of burdened lives how are christians different is a uh, question Um, and so we thought a bit about last night uh, the movie chariots of fire and eric liddell who wouldn't run on the sunday because of his faith and uh, a little less known character harold abraham who his whole life his whole identity were tied up with him as a runner and winning a race. And his uh, success or failure in life was run, was identified in 11 seconds of running down a 100 metre uh, track. Uh, Christians, we've got a different story and that's what we're gonna try and explore uh, in a moment. And we're gonna do it, sort of, a bit of discussion. You'll find that there's an outline on uh, your booklet, uh, on page eight and nine is where we're gonna be this morning. Uh, and I will get you to Uh, Ask some questions. I'm going to start with um, getting you to tell stories. I'll tell you mine and then you can share yours. Um, Probably at some stage uh, in uh, growing up, your parents may have had a conversation with you about what you're going to do. You know, astronaut, fireman, policeman, you know, that kind of conversation. I remember my brother having that conversation. He was kind of in tears, he didn't know what he was going to be in life. It was kind of like this existential crisis at about age eight. And Dad had him on his lap and was, you know, they're the three options, and kind of astronaut may not be, da 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 and kind of he was, he was very gracious and kind of, I um, came from a family where it was, education was actually really valued, um, My both my mum and my dad uh, studied medicine, and my dad became uh, an eye surgeon, and... We lived in a culture in Sydney, I don't know kind of how it compares to Auckland, where uh, education was very highly valued and what you did really mattered. Um, And it wasn't really an option of whether you went to university, it was what you studied at university and uh, it had to be in a certain set of kind of occupations at university. And so I think my, uh, their sort of underlying, we never said our live kind of narrative was, uh, you either do medicine or uh, I think the alternative was work at McDonald's and my first job was working at McDonald's so they kind of going, oh maybe he's drifting towards option two they were kind of there was a sort of simplified version of their, their schema um, but then in year 10 in high school I won the craft prize uh, so there was only about three or four boys that did this thing called after school craft and they kind of got to make sort of wooden things and I made a chair and you know there was only four boys so I came first. And uh, they gave me this prize and mum said, wow we've worked it out, it's no longer McDonald's, Nick's going to be a carpenter. And they actually got me this little set of tools that were completely inappropriate, like they were tools for like a six year old and they kind of had this tiny little shore and and a plane and they actually got me lined up for an apprenticeship Um, and it was very odd because I had no aptitude whatsoever, it was only just four place. it wasn't a very good test uh, of what I was, but they kind of were desperate to find me uh, meaning in life and uh, they worked out it wasn't McDonald's and probably wasn't at Murdison, so maybe Kraft would be it. This whole conversation matters a lot. Uh, and I think COVID's really shown it. Do you notice that it used to be that there was these kind of elite professions and then there was sort of other ones. We would never name it, but they kind of is a pecking order. Uh, and you found it every time you had the conversation, hi, I'm Nick and, and what do you do? And the next thing is this kind of arranging of, oh, you're, du- you're a brain surgeon. I do X, and we kind of, and astronaut trumps all of them, I think. Um, And we rank ourselves according to what we do, because it's not just what we do. In our culture, what we do is who we are. We don't work, we have careers. Uh, And it really tells us where we stand and whether we've got a life of meaning. Um, And there's a half-truth in there, because God made us to work. And it's only a half-truth, because our work is not who we are and yet our culture has this thing where our work is our story and it ties into our rest as well because our rest uh, we just think it's neutral Um, we take some time off and then we do this thing called work but even that is telling a story because uh, it's interesting when we think about rest the bible thinks very positively about rest in and of itself But we tend to think of, say, rest as just the absence of work. Rest is the bit that recharges us in order to do work. Because remember, your identity is found in work. You are what you do. You are what you achieve. The Christians don't think like that. And yet you swim in that water and you've absorbed it. And because you think you are what you achieve, well, work is just kind of like my battery being recharged And you're kind of like getting you back to 400% so that you can work. In other words, you are what you do, you live to produce. And do you remember the the statement? This is by a non-Christian. If your work is yourself, when you cease to work, you cease to exist. And last time I got you to do the mental thought experiment of your last day at work, packing up your carton and working out, what happens when I stop working? If you can answer that question well, you've understood life well. But I don't think we think about it. I think we desperately scramble in order to make a mark in the world. And we desperately want to be significant. And we think work is the way we're going to do it. And the Bible has a different answer. And it's a really valuable answer. And when you discover it, it frees you from what so many of your contemporaries around us scrambling and striving to do desperately. And instead, God gives you an identity which is far more refreshing and valuable. So that's where we're going to kind of go. Um, One of the things that helped me to think about it is, you know when Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, you guys are doing some of the mount at the moment, aren't you? Um, You'll get to this. And uh, Rowan's hoping more of you are aware you're in Matthew. Um, (laughs) Matthew chapter 6, he'll say, where your treasure is, what's the end of it? There There your heart will be also. Now, what it doesn't say is where your treasure is, there your heart ought to be also. It tells you where your investments are is where your heart is. You don't say, oh, no, 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 my my real treasure is in in, in following the Lord, but my treasure is here. My heart's there, but my treasure is there. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, your heart is where your treasure is. And you can't separate. It's not you ought to put your treasure in the other place. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Is what it is. It's much more convicting, can you see? This weekend, I want you to think about another aspect of maybe treasure. Not kind of money, but time. Where your time is, there your heart will be also. Just try, as a mental thought experiment, imagining thinking that through. Let me put it another way. What story does your use of time tell what story does your use of time tell when you open the bible at genesis chapter one you see two big aspects of time being expressed work and rest work and rest two sides of the one coin and the story of our work and rest tells a story of who we are and what we think matters in life and here's the thing sociologists uh, like jk smith and others have observed that christians often think that they are what they believe there's i believe a series of propositions about jesus about his the creation of the world and his returning and how i'm saved and how i'm forgiven and that's what makes me me and that is true to an extent but sociologists would say the rhythms in life our patterns in life the way we work and importantly the way we rest are much more formative than just assenting to belief statements. The way we stop and remember who we are really, really matters. Now, you think about our culture, and we have taken work and rest, and we have merged them into one. And isn't it wonderful now, you can work from home, you can zoom in, and that means you can do work around your Restaurant and isn't that a wonderful blessing? We think, but actually, now I'm just always working. Uh, we had the mobile phone, and when I was growing up, we didn't have mobile phones. And then they were introduced, and you kind of like, think, This was a status symbol. You had this, this device on, on your hip, and it said, You are so important, you always need to be contactable. And we thought, Wow, what, what privilege! I can be contacted anytime. And our bosses could now contact us all the time, not just in eight hours, they could contact us all the time. And what a privilege because I'm now really important to the work. They say that I am very valuable. And so they put this little ball on chain and connect me to work all the time. And I think, wonderful. Uh, the way we use social media, I'm glad some of you are putting your phone in a box. I couldn't do that. Um, mine's actually run out of charge anyway. Um, <laughs> it says a lot about our kind of connection, that that life of... Frantic busyness. And I think I want to ask you, Christian, how different are you from your culture? How formed by the story of your culture are you rather than the story of the scriptures? How deeply impacting has the story of the gospel been on the way you use your time in work and in rest? Uh, I'm going to do it in three days over the weekend. Three metaphoric days. Day 1 we're going to spend in the first chapter of the Bible uh, and see how God rests, actually chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 the 7th day and then I'm going to take you to Exodus 20 and look at the Sabbath day and then I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at how the writer talks about another day as we put our trust in Jesus. So they're the three days we're going to look at and through those three days I think what you'll see is what life's about and how your work and rest tell that story. Um, It's kind of important, uh, if you think about your life, uh, you've got roughly, probably a bit lower based on uh, Andrew's uh, summary uh, questionnaire I just did, but I I roughly work out eight hours sleep, hour hours sort of formal work and eight hours family and prep for work. A third of your life is asleep. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Have you thought about that? You need a theology of sleep. We'll put that aside. A theology of work, a theology of rest. I don't know how much you've thought about the eight hours that many of us doing paid work um, and how that connects to your faith. We'll do a bit of that today. But also a theology of rest and how it's not just preparing to do the work bit, it is valuable in and of itself, according to the Bible. Uh, So there's a real. Um, important today. Let's think about the way you work it out from Genesis 1 is there's six days where God works and one day where God rests and uh, we'll spend our time uh, with those two things. Firstly, there's six days. Let's spend some time thinking about that. Uh, The Bible opens in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God makes stuff. He works and in the six days he does his work of creation and on the seventh day he stops his work. Uh, For us, that is not very surprising and we kind of go, okay, that's kind of what I thought but it works much better when you read it against the alternatives. If you went back to the ancient Near East, there would be absolute... Genesis chapter 1 was absolutely shocking. The idea that God would work would be stunning for them. For most of them, it was a slave culture and so... The idea with work was you got other people to do it. And even in the time that Jesus grew up in under the Roman Empire, the Empire of Rome was built on the back of slaves. And in Greek culture, um, the idea was that if you had the opportunity, you would get other people to do work for you and dignity came when you ceased to work. Um, and, and so in their culture, the concept that a God would work was just totally foreign. In fact, we have a document, the Enuma Elish, uh, from the kind of same kind of context of uh, the, when the book of Genesis was written. And there's a lot of similarities. Um, it's sort of got seven acts, seven scenes of creation that match the seven scenes of Genesis. The big difference, though, is that the gods create humanity in order to be kind of like a slave race, The gods create humanity to do the dirty work for them so they can rest and swan about and get drunk and have parties and that kind of stuff. Um, But they, humanity is created in order to do work for God. But when we open the Genesis chapter 1, we see a God who works in giving us this gift of creation. The reason we're outside today kind of matches that. Where part of rest is enjoying the gift of creation that God has given us, right? And God gives creation as a gift to humanity. And that gift is one that comes through His work. And as the Bible kind of unfolds, we'll see that more and more. Because when Jesus comes into the world, can anyone tell me what Mark 10:45 says? says of jesus in his own words mark ten forty-five. let me start the sentence for you for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and in a context which slaves did the work god turns up and he says i come to serve still on it is totally revolutionary right and it matches with the opening chapter of the Bible. Sorry, God turns up and he connection. works try again in a and moment. he serves in order to give to others. And that is good according to the Bible. Our whole theology of work needs to reflect the fact that God works. God is a worker. Now, uh, we're not going to discuss it now, but I had a discussion question. Why did God take six days to create the universe? Why so long? You see, we've been uh, having a discussion for the last 150 years about whether God uh, exists and the proof of that is that he created the world in a miracle called creation in six days. And on the other side, some people would say, no, God doesn't need to do it in six days. He could take a long period of time and God could use the normal means of uh, the world uh, to bring about a creation. And some Christians have said, no, 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 the proof of God's existence is this miracle that He did it in six days. And go back to Genesis one. Now I've got to unpack all the kind of thinking on that, but it's been a big debate. Uh, and Christians have been trying to, for some, trying to really defend that it's all about the miracle of creation. And that, that's the reason that they would insist that it's six days. But to put park that debate for just a little bit, can I suggest There's another reason the Bible might be using six days as the number of days it takes to create the world. Remember when the book of Genesis was read? It was read in Israel who were living in the land uh, of uh, uh, the promised land of rest. And they work six days and rest one. It gives dignity to work and gives dignity to rest. And God, apparently, as the Bible opens, is introduced as a worker who works six days and rests one. He's a worker like you and I, says the Bible. He's not a God up there who has slaves to do his work. God came not to be served, but to serve. That ties it all together and gives something of a significance to our work and says our work is good. God works. Um... And it could be a real signification. Like Augustine, he came to Genesis 1 not with our question about kind of how do we know if the Bible's true, six days, is it a miracle, is it not? He came with a different question. God can do all things absolutely easily. He doesn't he doesn't something. Sort of oh, Milky Way, that was really a tough day, I'm going to need to sit down. <laughs> He just speaks and it happens. That's the whole point of Genesis 1, right? Let there be and it was and it was and it was. It's not like when I talk to my kids, let there be a clean room and there's not, and there's not, and there's not. When God speaks, things happen, which is one of the big differences, isn't it? It's effortless for God. So Augustine asks a very different question to our one. He says, why on earth did it take six days? Why was it not one day? Why was it not an instant And that is a really good question that he speaks in a very different culture and I think reads the text more carefully. Why six days? Because God is giving dignity to work and God is giving dignity to rest. God is a worker. That's how he's first introduced in the Bible. Notice how our questions sometimes distort our reading of the Bible. We come with our questions which come from our culture and it's very important to step outside as best we can and re-enter and say what questions would they ask? Well, we're at 2A, God's a worker, and I've probably got to speed up because they get a big excited on some things. Uh, the second thing we find is that you've got a job. It's not just the God's a worker, and then you sit back and go, kind of like uh, the children in many of our households. Isn't it awesome? Mum and Dad do all the work in this household. It's a bit like a hotel, and everything kind of uh, runs, and they kind of do all the stuff. This week, I was very proud I had a Dad moment where I decided that if I'm gonna be a responsible dad, I need to train my son up to actually not treat us like a hotel. And so my, my big responsibility on Wednesdays is taking out the rubbish. And so I got my 16 year old son to do it alongside of me. And I kind of, several points of resistance. And he said, no, 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 dad, I don't need to do that. That's your job. I'm training you, son, and we can do it together. No, 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 this looks, sounds very hard. And I go, no, 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 we'll do it together. And I'll, oh no, you can do it. This is just annoying. And, Anyway, we got over several points of resistance during the task that took maybe all of 10 minutes. And uh, he has now been uh, apprenticed under my care to be able to do this important task. Well, God in Genesis 1, have a look at verse 26 and following, gives us work to do. And it's what gives all our work dignity. Um, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and verse 27 so god created mankind in his own image we often think of image in terms of capacity and kind of capacity to to communicate or to kind of be clever and rule or do scientific experiments the text doesn't say anything about that i take it the first and primary thing of being an image of god is God in Genesis 1 is the ruler of mankind, of the creation. He speaks and it happens. And we are to be his representative rulers in this creation, ruling over the birds of the, the, the sea and the fish of the... Sorry, the birds of the sea. The other way around thing. Uh, we are his representatives of this world. And our work is tied up with caring for this world that he has made. And so we express godness in creation. We alone are the image bearers of God in this world. So of the six days, do you notice that humanity is on the pinnacle of creation? You have all the five days, then you have the six days he makes animals, and then on the 6B he makes humanity, and we're kind of like the, the top of everything he's made and appointed to rule over it. And if you get to Psalm 8... The psalmist is saying, what is man that you're mindful of? And the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You, you, you put everything under his feet. And he's actually reflecting on exactly these verses. And he's saying, that is incredible that you would pick us. We express God's rule in this world. But also, you will notice that we care for the creation. If you have a little picture, you have three sort of dimensions to the work that we do in this world. We represent God in this world where he's image bearers. And in doing that, we care for creation and we care for one another. Sort of downward to creation and then across towards one another. And in your work, uh, you ought to be able to see the dimensions of what you do expressed in those three directions. How does it relate to God? How does it relate to creation? And how does it relate downwards to this creation and our care of it? But but notice, for instance, chapter 2, verse 15. Actually, I'll read first from... Verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. It's interesting the way creation is described in chapter 2 is that creation waits for the arrival of man, the worker. It, 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 it's, it's totally weird the way it's described, that all of creation is waiting for us To be like a gardener. Genesis chapter 2 is like a garden with humanity as the gardeners of it. And come down to verse 15, you'll see the same thing Idea: The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So you, you see this responsibility for creation. And we've really noticed that in the last decade, the way we have treated creation has really been shown to be an expression of sin in this world. And uh, Christians have got a very clear resource to say this is breaking our responsibility that God created us for in this world. Um, If we were, for instance, renting this earth from God, we would not get our bond back. (laughs) We are made to responsibly care for this creation and That's kind of part of the way you think about your job. How does it express that well is a good question to ask. But thirdly, work is an expression of love of our neighbour. We tend to think work in very individualist ways. So I used to work in IT and I think my default thinking about work was, I really want to uh, contribute well to my church. And uh, these people are rich and have excess money. I'm like Robin Hood. I take from the rich and give to the poor, the church, and transfer wealth towards gospel kind of transformation and kind of good-hearted, but not a very strong theology of work. Because I would go into the workplace as a Robin Hood in order to take. Yes, to give to a good cause, but... I didn't go into work as I think every Christian should go into work. Asking the question, how can I be like Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve? As I went into my IT world, I had to rethink my priorities. And I had to say, I go into this space in order to serve and love, not in order to take, in order to give somewhere else. It wasn't enough to kind of go, oh, yeah, but it's for a good cause. Every day I had to go into work and say, I am here to be like Jesus, to serve. And not to be served which meant that I had to think for instance about my customers as not just an opportunity to take from them and maximize profit I had to actually say am I giving them something of value I did actually have to make a profit because I also had to serve my employees and I had people whose livelihoods and their family depended on me making a profit so actually making profit was good but we together needed to actually genuinely meet needs of our customers. And then I had to think about my own family because often I would pay my employees small business, pay my employees ahead of our family because uh, I need to kind of care for them, but actually my wife had to think of and say, actually, we're not used just a bank. I need to actually make enough money uh, in order to be able to support my family and see that as a way of serving them. So I had to reorient my thinking about serving Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. There's not many chapters in the Bible where you'll find work directly addressed, which is why you probably haven't had many sermons on the topic of work as a topic. And you kind of go, oh, well, I I spent a third of my life working. Let's just use paid work or something like it for the moment. Um, Does that mean my church doesn't really care about kind of what I do with my life? Isn't my church really... No, no, the way the Bible answers the question generally comes from something much different from here's how to be a really good uh, occupational therapist or IT guy or whatever. <laughs> you know, it starts from a different place, a much bigger story. Well, that's what we need to come to. And that's how rest comes into it. But let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. What do you find about how do you serve the Lord in Ephesians chapter 6? Because it's one, one of the few passages that actually speaks to a worker directly and says, this is what it would look like to be a godly worker. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. Let me start with the masters. It's really interesting, and there's a play play on, on words that you get in the Greek here. The word for Lord Jesus is the same word there in verse Nine masters. It's a play because the word Lord Jesus is kind of like boss, and a boss can be boss of the universe, or he could be boss in my company. It's in Greek one word. So now try rereading it and seeing the word play that's going on. And Lords, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their Lord and yours is in heaven and there is no favouritism with him. See how it plays out. If you're a boss at work, Paul writes to you and he says to you, you treat your employees well because you as boss have a boss who is in heaven and he sees all. Do not think that his eyes are not upon you when you mistreat your workers. And you'll find that all the way through the the Bible, you'll constantly see the prophets railing against people who exploit the poor exploit workers who take from them in order to build fancy houses and comfortable batches and all that kind of stuff at the expense of their workers. Um, I remember being really passionate about this because uh, we were living in a rented uh, uh, flat when we arrived in uh, uh, New Zealand and I think we had five or six different houses in the first x year five years and our kids just got used to moving on and moving on and our landlord Uh, represented himself as a Christian but every time we had a problem with something in the house he'd worked out a way of making it our problem that we would have to pay and he was always you know making huge amounts of money on his kind of investment um, and it went up hugely in value and he had no problem in putting up the rent at every opportunity and yet whenever it was he would make oh that's your problem you're a bad renter and uh, you need to fix this. You need to. And kept on getting out of his responsibilities. And I remember training up students at university and thinking, you are going to be in the next generation, you're going to be owning flats, you're going to be owning things. I hope you do never treat people like this. Because you need to remember that as bosses, you have a boss in heaven. That's what Paul says. But then he turns to the slaves, or previously he turned to the slaves, and he speaks to them and says, Actually, the way you do your work needs to change. What do you think the heart of the change is when you look at Ephesians chapter 6? I think it could be summarized like this. Imagine that your work you went to, whatever you do during the day, that your boss was not your current boss but Jesus. Imagine how that might change the way you did it. You go into your workplace and you think, I want to do my very best job for Jesus in this place now work out what does that look like and paul says to you that is precisely how i want you to go into the work now bear in mind the cultural context he's not saying a wonderful job provided by the dhb where you have all kinds of rights and provisions i sign work contracts for my staff all the time and then like 20 pages of all these protections my workers have and kind of if they sneeze i need to go and run and kind of solve all this kind of stuff for them and you know there's all kinds of protections living in new zealand i think it's a great thing slaves had none of that and often the master would just say dig a hole put a ditch over there in their culture slaves were not workers like ours. the gospels affected our culture not in theirs slaves were equivalent to a tool you had a hammer and it did a function you had a slave and it did another one They didn't think of people. Remember how radical Genesis 1 is? That every human person you meet is made in the image of God and is precious? None of that in their culture. Very different world. And so to slaves, the work you do, whether it's digging a ditch or building a palace, that is for the glory of God. And you would go into it thinking, this I do as if God is my boss. And that he will say, that is a good job. I'm working for the Lord when I do that. All right, that's a quick theology of work, but the seventh day is where it all comes together. The seventh day actually tells you what life's about. Uh, any of you guys fans of Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs is one of my little kind of, uh, well, I don't know if hero is the right word. I'm, I'm intrigued by Steve Jobs. He's, he died of pancreatic cancer, and uh, there's a really brilliant biography of him by a guy called Walter Isaacson. If you can get your hands on that, read that. Because Steve Jobs is this absolute enigma. On the one hand, by our culture's standards, he was in the most successful guy in a generation. He built a company that just went to is he, is he worth two trillion dollars? Apple at the moment. I went through the the, uh, the, the highest value um, company uh, in the world or something. Uh, I don't know. You've got the stats on that. You can check that. But I think they're over two trillion dollars at the moment. And it really was tied around Steve Jobs and his decisions he made. And he uh, went through uh, the company doing that. But Walter Isaacson also tracks his private life. His relationships with, say, um, who was his... uh, Steve Wozniak Wozniak was his partner in the early days. He basically ripped Steve off and threw him on the trash heap. Uh, Every relationship, and I mean every single relationship in his life, came second to his ambition to change the world through IT and his family just got used to him betraying them at every point he finally for instance um, you remember Apple had a problem with their phones where uh, you you held the phone and the antenna wouldn't work very well it was called antenna gate or something it was some sort of big problem they had to recall a whole lot of phones and and there was this big thing he made a promise to his uh, son or daughter that they were going on a trip to Japan and uh, this would be finally repayment for all the times that had been stolen from holidays because he was a workaholic. They are on the plane, they got the announcement that there was a problem, it was a big deal. Steve takes his child and he says, I'm gonna teach you a lesson about how business works. Holiday's over, flies to headquarters and we're gonna solve the problem. And has the kid in the room and how we're gonna solve the problem. And he thought that was a wonderful life lesson on how to teach his kids what life is about. And every single relationship in his life was broken because work was always where he found his meaning. Uh, there's this uh, video you can watch on the internet where he gives one of those commencement speeches that are uh, an address, and basically he says, you need to make your mark in the world, you need to make a dent in the universe. Um, I like to use the analogy of dropping a rock into the water and you see the ripples go out, and his vision of life was trying to throw a really big rock into the water and see the ripples just change the world, and they have, haven't they? But... In a generation's time, in two generations' time, in three generations' time, whether it's long or short, the ripples will have gone and no one will know who Steve Jobs is. And that view does not make any sense in the light of eternity, does it? And Jesus had a parable about people like that the parable of, of the rich fool, who had lots of bounds and uh, made great profit. And God's verdict on the last day summed up in two words, you fool. And I want to say today, you do not want to hear those words on the last day. And yet lots of Christians are shaped by a Steve Jobs view of work and rest that says you are what you do and that is wrong and it does not work in eternity. It tells a story about work and rest that is fundamentally anti-God. You are what you produce. We have a story where life is about knowing god life is about living in relationship with him and this creation and with one another in perfect kind of balance that's what the garden of eden represented shalom peace perfect relationships and all those dimensions but we've swapped it for finding identity as if god is not there and now my value comes from what i do do you see when someone says to you and what do you do The cultural narrative behind that is so important to unpick and work out. And Christians, you have bought into it just as much as anyone else because it is the air you breathe and the water you swim in and you need to identify it and then go, what is the story that God wants me to believe? The true story that explains who I am, explains this world and explains why I'm here and it's summed up in the strategic position of the seventh day. See, the climax of creation is not work. That would mean the sixth day was the climax. But in Genesis, there is a seventh day where God ceases from all his work. And if you think about the way the story is told, clearly the seventh day is the climax of the story. Humanity is the climax of made created things, but the seventh day tells you the point of the story. And Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, tells you what life is about, and it is not work. It is a ceasing from work. Have you got that? And if I just muted your kind of explanation that comes next, does your life and the way you use your time of work and rest tell that story? Let's think about the seventh day together. Come back to Genesis chapter 2 if you move your finger. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It doesn't take much to notice that Genesis 1 and that first bit of chapter 2 have a certain pattern about them. And the number 7 is very, very significant. It's a no-brainer to notice that it is seven days. But to read the original, you'll find sevens appearing everywhere. Verse 1 has seven words. Verse 2 has two sevens of words. Um, The two key created realities, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens 14 times, earth 14 times. And it was good seven times. And God said seven times. All the way through our uh, sevens and sevens all the way through. It is kind of very numeric uh, symbolism is ringing all through Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The seventh day is no accident. It is the pointer to what life is about. And we've got to think it through what it means. Do you notice something interesting? Every other day says, and there was evening and there was morning, the First day, the second day, the third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Did you notice the seventh day did not have that? So chapter 1, verse 31, God saw it he'd made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. But go down to chapter 2 and it doesn't have evening and morning. There is no end to this day. Again, Augustine, speaking for a different culture, he kind of asked another question. Why is it that this day is different It's not described as having a beginning and an end. Now, I'm not going to be able to defend this answer yet from the text, but the Bible gives an answer to that question in Hebrews chapter 4. And it is to suggest, I would put, which I can't defend now, but I'm just going to put it out there, that the seventh day is not just a, it's not to tell you chronology, it is a metaphor for the purpose of life. That the point of creation is summed up chronologically in the seventh day. That is what you're created for. What is the seventh day? Well, it's summed up in the word rest, but what does that mean? Well, that's what the rest of the talks need to explain. But at heart it is to be in good relationship with God, with one another and creation. It is to recognise that you are more than a worker. You work because you're created in the image of God. You go into those six days having been appointed by the God who created you to do that work for his glory. But what we have done is we work seven days because we find our glory in our work. And that means we will say and do all kinds of stuff that's wrong because we want to get ahead. We want to climb that ladder. We want to make our mark. We want to do our thing in the world because that is where we find satisfaction and fulfilment. But if you have the seventh day... It reminds you who you are to go into the six days already with an identity, not in scrambling to create one. And I think Augustine got it right when he said, there's something different about this day. And here's the other clue, by the way. Do you notice that it says God rested when, if you think about it, God does not need rest? Psalm 121, You know, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is not like you that needs to sort of down tools and have rest. God, he does never get tired. He doesn't sort of make Andromeda and think, I, I need I need a beer. Mm-hmm. He makes, and then it says he rested. Why? Because it's the Bible's way of saying he's joining us in creation. He's joining us. Think of the picture of Genesis chapter 2, which I think is a spatial metaphor for what The seventh day is a chronological metaphor. That's kind of big words. A time metaphor and a space metaphor. The Garden of Eden is another way of actually expressing the seventh day. What does it look like to be in good relationship with God, one another and creation? Have a look at the Garden. That is another way of saying what the seventh day is. Now, Here's here's the radical bit of today's talk. God remains in the seventh day and its point of being there is to invite us to join him for what you were created for. Join me in the seventh day at rest. Join me in what's pictured in Genesis chapter 2, where we do work in the land of rest, which is weird. We had a bit of discussion, Gal and I, this morning about uh, is work the expenditure of energy or is um, can you rest while doing things? And I'm suggesting that actually the heart of rest is what you see pictured in Genesis chapter 2 of right relationships. And ironically, it's actually when God appoints man to do his work in the garden. It's funny because we think rest is the absence of work, but rest is being what we were designed and created to be. And when we get to Sabbath tomorrow, what we'll see is that Sabbath is a weekly reminder of who you are. All right, here's where we're going to land today. The purpose of creation is summed up in rest, which means, one, we don't live for work. Christian, you've got to work out how you're going to make your purpose not tied so closely to your identity and work that if you lose your job, you lose your identity. You are, first and foremost, a child of God, created by Him for His glory. Say that to yourself every day. Second, we don't live for rest. The solution is not just opting out of a society and going, smoking something somewhere on a beach somewhere... That is not your, your point. You actually need the dignity of work. Work is good. Six days of work, Australians need to hear, and then one day you rest. Australians are pretty much they'd be happy with a long weekend at either end that match and meet in the middle. But the Bible dignifies work and says it's good and it's a way of serving and expressing love for those around us. We do not live just for rest. We live for the glory of God. We work and we rest for the glory of God. And so how you do both matters to Jesus. Here's the thing. If you're busy and tired and stressed, is it possibly connected to the fact that you are trying to find an identity or create an identity that God has already given you as being in his image? And how might that stop you striving and receive something that's already been given to you And then send you back into your work with a new joy, a new purpose, and a new identity in order to do your job better. And in order to do your rest better. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks that you created this world as a gift for us. Thanks for your kindness to us. And we pray that you please help us to think differently. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.